Morning, church. How are you? Nice to see you today. It's uh, fun to continue in, in uh, chapter 10 of our study in Hebrews. If you're a guest with us today, welcome. We're glad you're here. We've been working uh, for a long time through the book of Hebrews, and uh, we, we should. We're on track to finish before the summer, so we'll see what happens. Um, Hebrews chapter 10 is important in, it's important for us to understand sort of the, the flow of thinking uh, from, from the beginning of the chapter to the end so that you kind of understand where this warning sits. Even as we were reading it together, uh, you, you may have sort of felt like your defenses go up. There's some heavy stuff in this text and you might go, okay, where's this going to go? Um, it, this, is in, this is an important warning. It's one of five warnings in the book of Hebrews, but in order for us to really understand why it sits where it does and what it means, uh, you, you have to sort of see the whole flow of thought. And that's the problem with breaking up a book like this and teaching it sections at a time is that if you don't retain sort of what's, what we've looked at really all the way through, you kind of lose the context. So just for chapter 10, let's, let's be reminded that at the beginning of chapter 10, the writer is talking about the fact that Jesus sacrificed himself as a response to the desire or the will of God, right? If you were with us in that study two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that Jesus essentially said, sacrifices, the shed blood of bulls and goats, that whole Old Testament system was just a shadow and a copy of the reality, and ultimately it's not something that God desires. He says, you, you haven't desired these kinds of sacrifices, you haven't desired the, the shadow, but a body you've prepared for me, Jesus says, right? And then he says, here I am, I have come to do your will. So there is this encapsulation of the idea that when Jesus gives his life, when he takes the sin of the world on himself, and he dies on the cross, sheds his blood when he's buried dead, and rises again, that he does those things not because they are just part of his nature, like that's just who he is, and not out of necessity, but what he does, he does as a response to the desire or the heart of God, the very will of God is the reason why Jesus gives his life, because God desires to rescue us from sin and death. And so by giving that sacrifice, the writer goes on to say in 10, he's opened a way for us, right? He's created this access. He's an advocate for us. And because he's opened this way where we can enter into the Holy of Holies, because he's our advocate, then we get to the middle section of chapter 10 where he says, so because of what Christ has done, let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast to our confidence in the promises of God and let us stir one another up. Let us be scheming and plotting, as we talked about last week, for ways to provoke one another to love and good deeds, right? And let's not, he says in 10, in verse like 26, let us not neglect the meeting of ourselves together as some have started to do, all the more as we look forward to the day appearing, right? He said we gotta be gathered together because this idea, in response to the advocacy and the access that Christ has gained us because of the will of God, in response to those things, we want to be drawing near, we want to be holding fast, and we do that in community. That's a big part of why we gather on a Sunday morning. You know, if you hear people go like, why church? Like, what is the point? This is a centralized place for us to come together and draw near to God, right? To hold fast to his promises, our confidence in what he's promised, and to stir one another up to the glory of God. And we don't want to walk away from this gathering because there's something beautiful and unique that happens in the breadth of who God, is, who, who God has brought into this place, right? Now, as he's thinking about not neglecting the gathering, the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is reminded of people who used to be here, right? 
who used to be a part of this community of the followers of Christ and who no longer are a part. He says there are some who are no longer gathering. They're, they're neglecting that rallying point. And as he's thinking of him, then he steps into this next section because he's talking about those who need the very warnings he's been giving us all along. Now, if you've been with us in this study from the beginning, you'll remember that in chapter two, we get the first of, of the five warnings in the book of Hebrews. The first one is, don't drift. Be careful that you don't drift. Keep your eyes on Jesus that you don't drift away. As we get into three and four, we hear him remind us and warn us to be careful because if you've started to drift, the very next step is that you'll start to doubt. And he reminds us of those in the Old Testament, the Israelites, who saw God's work in powerful ways, and yet they didn't couple their knowledge of God with faith, right? Remember that in chapters three and four. Then he gets to chapters five and six, and the third warning we see in five and six is this idea of dullness, that there's this trajectory, this stacking up. You start to drift, and then you start to doubt, and pretty soon you become dull of hearing and dull of learning. The milk of the word is no longer being put into practice in your life. And that's where then in chapter six we see a a very stern warning about the fact that if you don't trust in Christ, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, there, there is no other place in which to find salvation, right? Now he moves into the fourth warning, and this warning is, is again on that trajectory. We go from drifting to doubting to dullness of hearing and thinking, and finally here to a despising of Christ or a disregard of the truth of who Christ is. And that's what he's talking about here in 26. He says in Hebrews chapter 10, 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Wow, that's heavy. A fearful expectation of judgment, the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I mean, if you're like me, you read that and you go, oh man. Oh, I hope that's not me. I hope I'm not, I'm not, I hope I'm not who he's talking about here. Like there are moments in my life where maybe I drift a little bit or I've had my doubts. There, there are times where maybe I've been dull of hearing or dull of thinking, but, but I hope this isn't talking about me, that, that all I have is an expectation of a fury of fire. Like what's he talking? And, and there can kind of be this moment of panic. Like I, I hope that's not me. My, uh, my wife and I, we were, we were going to the staff Christmas party, the EV free staff Christmas party this year. And, uh, I wanted to do a Christmas party for our staff that would allow us to bring all our kids and all our spouses or significant others, even for the, the single people on staff who maybe don't have significant others, they could just, you know, find somebody on the internet or whatever and bring them to this, to this party. And uh, so we did our Christmas party this year on the beach in Newport, right? We, did a, we had bonfires and it was down there. And as we're, uh, we're driving down, my wife and I got bundled up because it was a way for us to do a Christmas party where it would be kind of cold. So we're wearing jackets and hats and whatever. Believe it or not, it was actually cold in California in December. Um, and so we're driving down to the beach for the staff Christmas party. And I said to my wife as we're going, I said, uh, I'm excited to see, you know, like how many ugly Christmas sweaters there are because we're doing an ugly Christmas sweater contest. And she goes, what? She goes, I didn't know we were doing an ugly Christmas sweater contest. And I said, yeah, we're, yeah I didn't tell you because I knew you wouldn't want to do, you wouldn't want to participate in that anyway. So I didn't tell you. And she goes, Darren, I'm wearing a sweater. What if I win? 
And I said, well, it's not like an ugly Christmas sweater contest. It's not like a thing you win accidentally, right? It's not like like we know people are wearing sweaters and when they get there, we're going to pick the ugliest one and give them a prize. Like people intentionally and knowingly, in full knowledge of what they're doing, they wear a thing called an ugly Christmas sweater and that's the ones that are going to be judged. It's not like something you stumble into. Does that make sense? It's important for you to know that when he's talking about those who are despising or disregarding the sacrifice of Christ, he's not talking about people who have momentary lapses of faith. He's not talking about those who have drifted but returned. He's not talking about those who are repentant. We see very clearly in the Bible the picture of the prodigal son who comes back to his father and says, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Will you have me back? And he falls into the embrace of his father, right? That's not who this is describing. This isn't someone who inadvertently becomes apostate, right? Listen to the way he's described, or this person is described. He says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. The idea there with the words go on is that it's perpetual. It's ongoing. It's habitual. If we go on sinning, that's compromising God's law and thought, word, deed, or attitude. If we go on doing that in a perpetual way, deliberately, right? making a conscious choice to live the way we want to do, to to juxtapose the values of the kingdom of God with our own values, if we go on sinning willfully or deliberately after acquiring a knowledge of the truth. So what we're talking about is someone who understands the gospel. Someone who understands that apart from the Lord Jesus, we are all dead in our sin. We're set to be separated from God for eternity, and there is no way for us to rescue ourselves. That we are physically incapable of saving ourselves, and so we're stuck, spiritually dead. Into that, God comes, and because of his love and his grace, he desires that none should perish. He finds a way both to uphold his holiness and his justice, and to extend his love and rescue the people he created. He does that through Christ. When someone learns the truth that Jesus came to the earth, not just to be a great teacher or to be a good philosopher or to give, you know, five good marks of being a helpful citizen, but that Jesus came to take the sin of the world upon himself, that he died in our place, he shed his blood, and he extends to us through his death and resurrection, life, and only life is accessible through him. When someone knows that truth, when they understand that Jesus is the only way to resurrection life and they go on, that's perpetual, sinning, compromising God's law, deliberately in rejection of, of the truth of who God is. Well, in that case, there, there's no longer any sacrifice for sins available. There is no other name under heaven, the Bible says, by which men can be saved. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So listen, if somebody knows who Jesus is, and they know what Jesus did, and they know how desperate we are to be rescued, and that he's the only way that eternal life can happen, and they say, no thanks, I'm going to do things my own way, there's nowhere else for that person to go. There is no other path to resurrection life. There is no other route to redemption or reconciliation. The Old Testament system didn't work. All of our striving and all of our effort, none of that will rescue us. And for a person who goes on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the word, there's nothing left for that person except a fearful expectation of judgment, the fury of fire, and consummation. And by the way, that doesn't mean annihilation. It doesn't mean those people blink out of existence. It means spiritual death separated from God for eternity. That's heavy stuff. Listen to the way this person, these people are described 
in this warning. He says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Look at verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Three other categories just to sort of put this in our brain. The idea of someone who has trampled the Son of God underfoot. That's what we're talking about. Someone who shows disdain to the Son of God. I understand who he is. I understand what he came to do. I understand what he offers me by his grace. And I would still put my foot on him. Tramples underfoot. It's the same word there that Jesus uses when he talks about casting pearls before swine. That, that they will just, it's not good for anything but to be trampled. Same thing Jesus talks about when he says uh, salt. That loses its saltiness. is good for nothing except to be trampled underfoot, Right? The idea is someone who can look at the Son of God and say this has no worth. He talks about profaning the blood of the covenant. That word profane essentially means to treat as common or unholy. Someone who would hear about the shed blood of Jesus and go, the shed blood of Jesus is just like any other blood that was ever shed by anybody in history. It's just regular blood. It's just a regular death. That death on the cross is just like anything else. That's profaning the blood of the covenant. Someone who would treat the shed blood of Christ as common or regular and not as holy. When he talks about, you know, outraging the spirit of grace, I love the fact that the Holy Spirit there is referred to as the spirit of grace. The writer doesn't want us to lose sight of the fact that in his grace, God sends the spirit of God to draw us to the Son. That the spirit of God testifies to us both about our need and about his solution. But that there are those who have heard the truth, who've who've absolutely understood or tasted, as we see in Hebrews chapter 6, they've tasted and seen, they've experienced something of the community of fellowship, and yet they've turned away from it. Those people are, are not just trampling the Son of God underfoot, they're not just calling the blood of the covenant, the shed blood of Christ, common and unholy, but they're also insulting. That word outraged could be translated insulted. They're insulting the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit has made known to them the truth and they've chosen to be willful in their rejection. It's kind of like, I, I always sort of hesitate. You ever feel reluctant when you make a, like, a, like a restaurant recommendation to people that maybe they won't like it as much as you do? That always makes me feel a little bit nervous, right? That I could go, hey, if you're looking for a good breakfast spot, you gotta go to Long Beach, go to Village Cafe, that's like my jam, get over there, make sure you order the number three and get the, you know, what, like I could tell you all this stuff and then if I, if I recommend Village Cafe to people, I'm always nervous they're gonna go, yeah, I tried it, I like Denny's, right? And I'll be like, no! I just gave you access. I just inspired you to go to my very favorite breakfast place. It's insulting to me for you to disagree. I mean, that's a very sort of a crass illustration compared to what the spirit of grace does to mankind. That the spirit of grace would say, you are lost in your sin. And because of my great love for you, I have come to rescue you from sin and death, and that mankind would be in a position to go, thanks but no thanks. I get what you're saying. I don't want it. I don't value it. For the one who profanes the blood of the covenant, who tramples the Son of God underfoot, who insults or outrages the spirit of grace, there is absolutely a consequence here. Back to 26. It says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. There's nowhere else to go but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The author here is giving us a warning and saying there are some who rather than falling into the loving and gracious embrace of a father who welcomes his children back to the table, that there are some who instead would make the choice to fall into the hands of a just and righteous, a holy God upon whom the wrath already is, the the wrath of God already exists. It says in John 3.18, in John 3.18 it says this, whoever believes in him, that's Christ, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. We get that, right? Whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What's that mean? Well, what it means is that the wrath of God is already the, the current condition of mankind apart from the grace of Jesus. Apart from the saving work of Jesus, we are condemned already. I remember as a kid sort of feeling like, uh, you know, you have to make a choice. Do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? You got to pick one, right? I, I, I was in a private school for kindergarten and we had this sweet little lady teacher and she got up one day and she goes, okay, boys and girls, today we're going to talk about something very important, you know, and we're like, I hope it's snack time, you know, and she goes, uh, she goes today we're going to talk about heaven and hell. And I'm not endorsing her theology, but this is the way the thing came across. She goes, uh, heaven is a wonderful place, and there's clouds and singing, and you can eat whatever kind of food you want, and all your friends will be there, and there's dancing, and, you know, angels, and we're, we're like, as long as there's food and stuff, we're good with that, right, you know? And uh, then she goes, now the other place is the bad place, and it's called hell, right? And she goes, and it's flames and burning, and people poking you with sticks and screaming, and it's dark, and we're like... No thanks, right? And she goes, now how many of you want to go to heaven and how many of you want to go to hell? And we thought she was just going to divide the class like a field trip, right? <laughs> like we've, we've chartered two buses and we can only put, so like, you know, we're like, no, please don't make me go to hell, right? And her picture of it wasn't even accurate. What we're, what we're talking about, the vengeance of God, the justice of God, We're talking about eternal separation from God who is light and life, who loves us, who sent his spirit of grace. We're talking about being fixed in that position for all eternity. And whatever cartoon image in your head you have of hell, the Bible's representation of it, being separated from God who loves you, is worse. And there are a lot of people in our culture who don't want to talk about hell, right? They don't want to hear about it. They don't want to hear about the wrath of God or the justice of God or the vengeance of God out of Deuteronomy 32, They don't want to talk about the fact that while there was a a temporal consequence for disobeying the law of Moses, you can read about it in places like Deuteronomy 17, uh, there was a temporal consequence, physical death. If you disobeyed the law of Moses, they took you outside the city and you were stoned, right? That's with rocks, not with drugs, right? They stoned you. You're like, I might disobey that. Uh, there There was death for those who disobeyed the law of Moses, but it was temporal death. It was physical death. How much worse, the writer says, is it to trample under your feet the Son of God, to treat the holy blood of Christ as common, to insult and outrage the spirit of grace? Well, the answer to that question is how much worse is the punishment? It's not temporal death. It's not physical death outside the gates of the city. It's eternal death. And we cannot possibly understand 
truly the grace and the love and the goodness, the kindness and the generosity of God in sending his son Jesus to us without understanding that apart from Christ we're condemned already. That it isn't a choice, pick heaven or hell. We are condemned already. And apart from the saving work of Christ, the wrath of God remains on us. So the writer here says, be warned. Be warned that you don't drift. Be warned that you don't doubt. Be warned that you don't become dull. Be warned that after hearing the truth of Christ, you don't disregard it. Because if you disregard the sacrifice of Christ, there is no sacrifice left. And the only thing you have to look forward to, or the only thing you can expect, is the punishment you deserve. It's heavy. It's admittedly heavy. I would much rather teach about love and happiness and doves landing on people's shoulders and rainbows and all of that. But the reality is that we serve a God who is both loving and holy. He's just and kind. And those things aren't opposites. He's not one of those things some of the time and one of those things the rest of the time. He is always loving and holy and righteous. In fact, the most loving thing is to uphold the standard that he set, to be true to himself. So there is a consequence for sin. But then the writer does what he's done again and again. If you've been with us in this study of Hebrews all the way through, you'll know that he gives a stern warning and he kind of shakes you up a little bit and you go, all right, I gotta check my heart. I gotta check whether or not I'm trampling underfoot the Son of God. Whether I'm treating the blood of Christ as something common. I gotta, I gotta do that sort of personal inventory. He, he shakes us up and then he encourages us. It's actually a great reminder for those of us who are parents or friends as we're stirring one another up to, to love and good works. To be thinking, like, there is a time for a chastisement or a warning, but, but it can be followed and should be followed with encouragement. Here's what the writer to the Hebrews says next. Back to Hebrews chapter 10. He has just said in verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 32, he says, but recall the former days. When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a possession, a better possession, and an abiding one. He goes, listen, there are those who know the truth, and yet they have willfully and disobediently in an ongoing way rejected that. But that's not who you are. We don't know exactly who this book was written to. So theologians and commentary writers, they go, well, we think maybe it was the Jews in this area or maybe it was the church over here. And then they'll sort of detail you know, why they think that. But let me tell you, we, we don't know exactly the audience that this book was originally written to. We don't want to waste any time speculating about things we can't know, right? The Bible doesn't tell us. What we do know is that whatever this community, wherever they were, they were a community that had faced persecution, So they were living during a time period in which they had faced persecution because of their enlightenment. So I love the fact, too, that he uses the word enlightened here. He says, recall the former days when you were enlightened. That that word can mean two things, and and I think in this text it means both of them. The word enlightened first means that you had your mind and your heart open to the truth. That you were, you were woken up to the reality of who Christ is. You were enlightened to that. But that word can also mean that you were lit up for the sake of other people to see right? That you were enlightened both internally and you were enlightened externally as a display to other people. He says, remember the former days when you were enlightened, when your eyes were opened and you were lit up as a beacon of this love and truth that are unending, right? 
And what happened? Because of this enlightenment, you faced all kinds of things. He says, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. They were going through difficulty. One of the reasons why they probably could think of the names and faces of people who'd been with them, who had tasted and seen something of the movement of God and yet had walked away. One of the reasons why when he says, let's not neglect our gathering together as some have done, they could have immediately thought of people who were examples of that, is that they had faced persecution, they had faced difficulty, and in the light of that difficulty, in the light of those hard struggles, some of the people had said, no thanks, it's not worth it. I'm doing a value judgment here, and I'm going, yeah, you know, I get what Jesus did, I understand who he is, but I don't want to deal with persecution, I don't want to deal with affliction, I don't want to deal with imprisonment, I don't want to have my property taken away. They did a value judgment and they went, my freedom and my happiness and my stuff is worth more to me than following Christ. But that isn't the way it has to be. Now, now there are certainly people living in our day and age today. Uh, in America, I will say, I have a hard time uh, affixing much persecution to the, to the life of the American church. There is some persecution that happens, but it's nothing compared to the way the church is persecuted across the world or the way the church has been persecuted throughout history. So I want to be careful that we don't sort of build ourselves up as persecuted people because sometimes they don't let us pray before our meal at the Taco Bell or whatever. You know, just be careful, right? But the reality is here that, that we all do a value judgment. We all go, no, it's worth it. Jesus himself said it will be hard to follow me. In Matthew 10, he says, all men will hate you because of me. They're gonna beat you and flog you. They're gonna drag you in front of their magistrates. Parents will try and kill their kids. Kids will try and kill their parents. He says, they're gonna call you the devil. And why would you be surprised by that? Jesus says, That's, those are all the same things they did to me. I think sometimes we start following Christ and we think it's gonna be easy. We think it's always gonna be simple. And when it turns out to be difficult, we go, no thanks. And we trample the son of God. We treat with disdain the blood of the covenant, we treat it as something common. We reject the testimony of the spirit of grace. But he says, that's not the way it has to be. You see, you yourselves are an example of those who faced trials, who faced difficulty, who faced imprisonment. And you, did, you didn't walk away, you didn't turn away in light of those things. What does he say? Your compassion grew, right? Because even those of you who weren't in prison were partnered with those who dealt with that. He says, not only does your compassion grow, but your joy was ignited in the confiscation of your property. Look at it again. He says, you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, right? He doesn't say they tolerated it. He doesn't say, hey, when your stuff was taken, all the physical stuff was taken away, you didn't go, oh, well, for the sake of Jesus, I guess we'll put up with it. No, he says, they joyfully responded to the confiscation and the, and the absconding of their property, why? There was joy for them. Here it is. The reason is because they knew that they themselves had a better possession and an abiding one. People can steal your stuff. People can take your reputation, right? People can take all of that stuff that our world says is valuable. But those of us who are followers of Christ, who have not trampled on the blood of Jesus, those of us who are followers of Christ, we know and find joy in the fact that we have a true and lasting possession. And can I, be, can I be clear about this for a second? When we talk about a true and lasting possession, I think some of us start thinking about like treasures in heaven, right? And we go, oh, true and last. Someday I'm gonna go to heaven and I'm gonna have a white robe and if I'm really good, maybe my robe's gonna be a little bit whiter than the other person who wasn't so good. I'm, they're gonna be living in like the ghettos of heaven, but I'm gonna be in like a really nice part. My, my robe's gonna be super white. I'm gonna have a big crown with lots of rubies 
Other people, they might only have, you know, emeralds or whatever, but, my, you know, and we start to do this thing that just turns our faith into capitalism again, right? It just turns it into a way, like, I'm going to follow God because someday I'm going to get a huge crown and a really white robe and I'll be able to lord that over a bunch of other people in heaven. Can I tell you, that's not what the Bible's talking about. When the Bible talks about a true and lasting possession, it's not talking about stuff. It's talking about a person. Our true and lasting possession, our abiding possession, the one from whom we can find joy, even in the midst of losing everything else, is that no matter what they take from us, they cannot take our Savior. We got Jesus. What do I care if they empty out my bank account? What do I care if my house burns to the ground? What do I care if they take everything else? I have a true and lasting possession, and it is a relationship with the risen one who has afforded me access to the Holy of Holies, has gone as a forerunner there, and serves as my advocate today. He says, no, remember, former times, after you were enlightened, when you understood and you were lit up, that you faced difficulty, and you didn't trample on the neck of Jesus, your compassion grew for one another. Your joy grew for one another because you knew what was important and what wasn't, because you understood what had value and what didn't. You see, like I said a second ago, the people who turn away from the living God, the people who reject Christ and have only the vengeance of God and the wrath of God to expect in eternity, those are people who did a value judgment and they went, no, I want the stuff. I want the bank account. I want the power. I want the privilege. I want the sex and the money and the speedboat and all those other things and I'm not willing to turn them loose for anybody. And if following Jesus means I'm going to lose those things, then I will not follow Jesus because I want those things. 1 Timothy, I love this verse, 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17 and following says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is Truly life. Isn't that a cool verse? He says, don't worry about all this stuff that isn't truly life, but live in such a way as to take hold of that which actually is life. Hebrews 26 says, it doesn't have to be a rejection. It doesn't have to be those who knowingly reject the sacrifice of Christ. You yourselves are those who found joy in the taking of your property because you knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. He says in 35, this is 1035 of Hebrews. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He says, don't throw away your confidence. And I would say, what he's saying there is don't throw away your confidence in Christ in the promises of Christ that, that we draw near to and that we hold fast to. There's all kinds of things you can throw away your confidence in, by the way. There's all kinds of things to throw away your confidence in, and there are all these things that amount to nothing. There are all the things that don't amount to true life. You want to throw away your confidence in your own reputation? Good choice. You want to throw away your confidence in your bank account? Good choice. You want to throw away your confidence in your power? Good choice. Throw away all those things. That's exactly why Paul says, right? Paul says in Philippians, look, I I came from the right family. I was trained in the right place. Uh, My credentials are impeccable. But I consider all of that rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ and being found in him with a righteousness that is not my own. He says later, I look forward 
to joining in the fellowship of his suffering. That's what it's talking about in Hebrews 10. They're in the fellowship of suffering with one another and in the fellowship of suffering with the Lord Jesus himself. I would say to you this morning that that the writer here is saying, throw away your confidence in things that deserve to be thrown away, but do not throw away your confidence in the promises of God, in the saving work of Christ, because you need endurance. You need endurance. And then he goes on to... uh, He goes on to say, you need endurance. This is 36. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. I love that he brings this back around because remember at the beginning of chapter 10, he said that the saving work of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ was what? A response to Christ's understanding of the desire of God, the will of God, right? So now at the end of chapter 10, he goes, all we're doing is the same thing Jesus modeled for us. We're enduring so that we too... Offer up the life that's been prepared for us in the service of God's whim and will. And he quotes from Habakkuk. Well, he quotes from a couple of different places, but primarily Habakkuk. You can look this up later if you want in Habakkuk 2. He says in verse 37, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. It's interesting, the, uh, the prophet Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, um, he, if you read Habakkuk chapter one, he goes, how long am I gonna keep crying for help here, God? I'm looking for help, I'm crying for, for help, I'm in trouble, I need deliverance, and where are you, right? And God comes back in chapter two of the book of Habakkuk, and he says, be patient, be patient. I'll fulfill my promises, I'm with you, but I'm not in a rush, We have to remember that endurance is required because God isn't slow as some consider slowness, but he's patient, not wishing that any should perish. You know, when we talk about the vengeance and the wrath of God, when we talk about the flame of fire and the consummation, it's important for us always to remember that God desires none should perish. Is there a consequence to sin for those who have rejected the truth? Absolutely. Is there a consequence to sin for those who have not put their faith in Christ? Absolutely. That is a part of God's righteousness and his holiness. But God desires that all would come to repentance. And so he quotes out of the book of Habakkuk here and he says, the righteous will live by faith. Paul quotes it again in Romans. It gets quoted a couple of other places. The righteous will live by faith. It's first said to Habakkuk, saying, be patient, I'm, I will come. I will do what I promised to do. And the writer to Hebrews gives us this last sentence before he transitions into chapter 11. He says this in verse 39. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Yeah, right? What an awesome verse. He goes, look, here's a warning for you. You could drift And if you start to drift, it's not long before you'll start to doubt. And if you start to doubt, it's not long before you'll become dull. And if you become dull, it's not long before you'll have a complete and utter disregard for the saving work of Christ. If you shrink back from the truth you understand and know because you've made a wrong value judgment, if you shrink back, you will be destroyed. But he says, listen, that's not us. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, we, he says, are of those who remain faithful and retain or keep or preserve our souls. That's who we are. That's why we gather. But the reality is, even in a place like this, it's, it's healthy for us to go, what are the ways and the places in which maybe I've started to drift 
What are the ways in which I gotta take the warning on the chin? Have I started to disregard or to profane the blood of the covenant? To insult the spirit of God when he leads me? Are there places where I've said, you know what? I prefer my stuff to following Christ. Or do you recognize that all of that other stuff disappears, that it all ends up in the dump or the graveyard. Have you recognized in your life a better and lasting and abiding possession that isn't a thing, but is a person? The Lord Jesus Christ cannot be taken away from us. I would guess there may be some of you in the place this morning who can think of friends of yours or maybe family members, maybe people who used to attend this church, people who sat right next to you, and they're not here anymore. And, they're, and they're, it's not just that they're not here, but they're not following Jesus anymore. I certainly know people like that. Can I, can I just remind us, none of those people got up one morning and went, you know what, I think I'm done following Jesus, right? That's not like a value decision people make in a split second. No, what happens is that over time, they take their eyes off of Jesus. And they put their eyes on themselves. They start to drift And then incrementally over time, a little bit of doubt creeps in and a little bit of dullness. They stop listening to the the implanted seed of God's word. And then all of a sudden, you look down and you realize there's this disregard and they go, why would I go to church? Why would I open God's word? Why would I share my faith with other people? I can't even remember why. All I care about is making money. All that matters in this world is what people think about me. All that matters in this world is feeling good and having fun. They didn't decide to do that overnight. That happens in a slow progression. The writer of the Hebrews is saying to us, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. Don't stop looking at Jesus. And if you know people today, people that are at their homes or people that you're gonna see at work tomorrow or people in your schools, people who've turned away from the living God, it is not too late for those people to come back to their father and say, like the prodigal son, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. Will you receive me back? And then instead of falling into the hands of a living God, they fall into the arms of a merciful father, of a loving savior who's already paid the price to rescue them from sin and death. We want to take this warning on the chin. We want to evaluate the drift in our own lives. But we also want to recognize that this is exactly why we exist in a community. So that we can go out into the neighborhood. So that we can go out on the streets. So we can go out into the grocery stores and the gas stations and tell people, you can be reconciled to God. You do not have to pay the penalty for sin yourself because he has done this on your behalf. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But we are of those who have faith and preserve our souls. Next week, as we get into chapter 11, he's gonna describe for us in detail exactly who it is that we are in company with. We're of those who have faith. He's gonna describe for us exactly what that company looks like in the weeks ahead. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would shake us a little, that you would wake us up to the reality that apart from your grace, we are destined to be separated from you for eternity. I pray that if there are some, even in this room, who've never put their faith in you, that you would draw them to yourself right now. That they would cry out to you in the quietness of their heart and say, Jesus, will you rescue me from sin and death? I turn from my sin and I turn to you and your love. I pray for those that aren't in the body anymore, those who've walked away, who've not only neglected an occasional gathering, but have drifted so far and become so dull in their hearing and thinking that they've started to disregard the value of who you are. God, would you draw them back to yourself? Would you allow us to be a catalyst in the lives of those who may be on the fearful path 
to destruction. And God, would you give us a heart for those who've not heard this message and stir in us a fire to declare your truth to those who don't know it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.